Okay, we were warned about this. They said, if you preach predestination, you're just going to end up dividing the church. If you preach predestination from the Bible, you're going to end up creating a group of people who are fanatical about doctrine, who are divisive, and who will splinter the church off into various fragmented groups. And you will have a body of people who are cold, passionless, and only concerned about doctrine. And the proof is here. The latest Christianity Today article on young, restless, and reformed chronicles the division now in the Southern Baptist Convention over Calvinism. We're going to talk today on Sinners and Saints about predestination and Calvinism. Does it really divide the church? Does it really lead to dispassion in missions? Does it really lead to head over heart? Stay tuned with us on Sinners and Saints. In an age of moral bankruptcy, political sleaze, theological confusion, and aimless religion in a mindless church, we're addressing the need for a Bible-based, intellectually rigorous, 21st century Christian faith. This is Sinners and Saints. Theology with an edge. Hey, thanks for joining us today on Sinners and Saints. As usual, to dig into this discussion, we have Moses Jambazian from Pasadena United Reformed Church. Reverend Adam Kalustin from Ontario United Reformed Church, and I'm John Sautel, pastor of All Saints uh, United Reformed Church here. We've been talking about this article. I'm sure some of you are aware of it. It's all over uh, the book stands and the Internet. People are blogging and criticizing and talking it up. Uh, this September issue here of Christianity Today, entitled Young, Restless, and Reformed. I think my favorite part about this is the article uh, rather, the, the cover page of Christianity Today, which has a, a guy sporting a Jonathan Edwards shirt, which says, uh, Jonathan Edwards is my homeboy. Uh, but at any rate, the subtitle of the, of the uh, article is, Calvinism is making a comeback and shaking up the church. A very interesting article. Some of it's just a rehash of things we already knew. Uh, this article has probably been done a hundred times before in the last ten years, just from different angles. But there's some things here that are profitable for discussion's sake. And uh, one of the things that uh, that got me thinking as I was reading this article is, first of all, who's responsible for defining what Calvinism is? As you look at this article, it looks like they're saying John Piper is the source of definition about what Calvinism is. Well, John, that's just it. I mean, the poster boys in this article, for those who are supposedly Reformed, are not Reformed people. I mean, I'm looking at a picture here in the course of this article, and there are five guys sitting together in a conference answering questions. There's Al Mohler, who's a Baptist. There's John Piper, who's a Baptist. There's C.J. Mahaney, who's a Baptist, I guess, of some variety. And there's Mark Deaver, who's a Baptist. Now, the, the fifth one that is with them, Ligon Duncan, is the only confessional Presbyterian or confessionally Reformed person of the whole lot. And the article talks a lot about the Southern Baptist Convention and John Piper and Mark Deaver and Al Mohler and all this Reformed theology that they're promoting. They are only promoting a very narrow aspect of Reformed theology known as the five points of Calvinism, but that does not define what Reformed means. Well, the interesting thing about this article is it traces the roots of this uh, Calvinistic renaissance, not to Tulip, not to Five Points of Calvinism, but to John Piper's book, which was published in 1986, uh, entitled Desiring God, which 
from what I remember of the book, and I haven't looked at it in quite some time, is not a defense of the five points of Calvinism or anything that could remotely be construed as classic Calvinism. In fact, the book, we've, as we've said here, not being about a defense of the major points of classic Calvinism, the tulip or whatever, is really uh, sort of a book on piety about how Christians ought to delight themselves in in uh, finding happiness in God. And the reason why they're supposed to do that is because God delights himself in himself. So the whole book is sort of an esoteric, inwardly focused uh, book on, on piety in the Christian life and really has nothing to do with the Reformed faith. But it was still an improvement over what was going on before because it had become so man-centered, all of evangelical Christianity in the U.S., that when someone read something like this idea of desiring God, it was considered almost like a whole change of the paradigm. And so this became something that maybe caused some people to start thinking, like maybe the author of this article. But you're right. It was not a book that was defending classical reform doctrines. It was not something that led people back to the Reformation. It basically just said, take your hedonistic pleasures and now focus them on God instead. Yeah, but I think the article's point is that there are a number of charismatic leaders, including John Piper, who have gained popularity maybe for other reasons beside the Calvinism that they're promoting. But since they are also at least, you know, at least vocal defenders of, say, the five points of Calvinism, Tulip, therefore people who have followed them maybe for other reasons are also coming to this Calvinistic view that they that they hold, even if they're unaware that they believe that when they're first attracted to them. My point is, it doesn't matter because these people are not reformed. So reformed theology is not what's dividing the church. The five points of Calvinism may be vigorously debated in different circles, but we have the same problem with all these so-called five-point Calvinists that are calling themselves reformed and that are not in reformed churches. They're not reformed either. But, But it's disingenuous. I think this is the thing that really irks me about this, is these people present themselves as if they were the true followers of Calvin. And the problem is either they have not taken the time to understand Calvin's concerns and the concerns of the original Protestant reformers, or they are intentionally misrepresenting Calvin and the Protestant Reformation, because the Protestant Reformation did not begin with TULIP. It began very differently. It began as a, as a, as a quest for defining what is ultimately authoritative scripture or, or man-centered wisdom. And number two, it was about justification, how are we right with God. And if you examine any of these preachers that we set forth here, you will find that none of them make that the central concern of their so-called ministries. Yeah, you've heard us talk about this over and over. People who define Calvinism as the, as the five points of Calvin, so-called or defined Reformed theology as the five points. That's not acceptable. Actually, the five points of Calvinism were a response by the Reformed churches to a particular set of errors that were set forth in the Protestant church, which was already becoming established. So it's wrong to define Reformed theology, to define Calvinism as the five points. The Reformers, Calvin himself, wrote a lot more about justification and about the sacraments and about the church than he did about what we call Calvinism today, these five points. Well, it'd also be good for people to realize that Calvin isn't the one who invented Calvinism, as they say. Calvin is coming into it 20, about 15, 20 years after the Reformation starts. There is already men like Bucer ahead of him and Zwingli, who's worked things out. So this idea that somehow everyone's getting attracted back to one man Calvin is really foolish. And it's an unfortunate way that people think 
And some of the responses that you've heard about this article would be, well, I don't follow men. I don't follow Calvin. I follow God in the Bible. Yeah, exactly. I thought you might even take that one step backwards. I mean, it's not, yeah, you, you, you accurately point out that, that Calvin is really just sort of standing on the shoulders of other people, the work that's already been started. But we even take it back before that. I mean, if you look at the Reformers' writing, their self-understanding of their own theology is not that they just cracked open the Bible and they learned a little bit of Greek and Hebrew and they started inventing for themselves this brand new system of doctrine that nobody had ever seen. Somehow, you know, they were on the mountaintop on a great retreat and uh, through fasting, meditation, and prayer, they received some brand new message for the church. Actually, the Reformers were all saying, hey, look, this is what the Bible teaches, and this is what the early church taught, and we're reforming the Catholic Church to go back to the actual teachings of the church. So it's misnamed entirely on that basis. For example, if you've ever read any of John Calvin's writings, especially his chief work, which is the Institutes of the Christian Religion, that writing is chocked full of defense of the biblical teachings that he's promoting by referencing the early church fathers. Right. A lot of his argument in the book is, listen, what when we're going back to the scripture and we're saying the things that we're saying, we're finding all of this stuff in the early church fathers, which the Roman Catholic Church has corrupted. So it's not something, obviously, that Calvin or the other reformers were inventing, certainly not even these five points, which they again articulated later when Arminianism began to rear its ugly head in the churches in Europe. It's something that was founded in the scripture, in the revelation of God's truth through the Old and New Testaments, the apostles promoted it, the early church fathers defended it, and the reformers rediscovered it. There's something else here in this article that, well, there's a number of things we can pick through, so I, I suppose we should go through them one by one. But one of the things here that, that troubles me is the way this debate is presented. As if what we should do when we're trying to determine which truth is ultimately most satisfying is which truth is least offensive and which truth causes the least amount of division in the church. Yeah, and that's a big problem because this article makes it look like the church was just sailing along and really doing the work of God. Now Calvinism shows up, and the question is, how are we going to evaluate it? It's not a question of, is it true? The question is, how useful is it? Is it something that will aid us rather than, is this what God has actually revealed in Scripture? Yeah, that is the certainly the subtext of this article, if not what's explicitly stated. You have like here a quotation from one of these guys, Josh Harris, who's apparently the pastor of some big uh, church back in the East that's coming to Calvinism or whatever. And, you know, he laments the fact that the first time that he had heard of uh, the doctrines of grace at some conference, he says, uh, I remember some of those first encounters I had with Calvinists. And he said, I'm sorry to say that they represented the doctrines of grace with a total lack of grace. They were spiteful, cliquish, and arrogant. Now, you see, this is the thing. It makes it sound like real. really what the issue is is all about presentation. And if we can just learn to present it in ways that aren't, you know, displeasing to people, if they aren't harsh and ungraceful and unloving and so forth, all of us can sort of live in a big tent and we can have one happy church full of Arminians, full of semi-Pelagians, full of Reformed Calvinistic types. And yeah, it almost sounds like we're arguing what finishing school to go to. It's not a question of truth. And that's part of what's so irritating about these kind of discussions is that no one says, can we open our scriptures and evaluate them from the totality? What is God actually teaching us about grace? 
say, though, I mean, it is true that a lot of so people that are calling themselves Reformed and calling themselves Calvinists do take on that cliquish, obnoxious, um, unacceptable, inappropriate, ungodly, arrogant tone. But you know what? Is this happening in these confessionally Reformed churches that people are aware of? Or this is happening by these little so-called Reformed and Calvinist cliques in these so-called churches? My point is, a lot of the people that they're looking to and that they're complaining about, well, they're the ones. I mean, they're not really Reformed. They're calling themselves Reformed. They're not in Reformed churches. They don't hold hardly any of the other Reformed distinctives, and yet they're the poster boys for Calvinism. And when people criticize Calvinism because of those people, well, they're criticizing a straw man, really, is my point. There's also another problem is that this presumes that unless you're a Calvinist, you're not cliquish and you're not obnoxious and you're not judgmental. So if that were true, then you could say, oh, okay, fine, Calvinism obviously has this negative effect. But the reality is they're just describing people and everybody on every side has these characteristics. Well, and I, and there, that's very interesting because they compare the way uh, Calvinism has sort of made inroads in, let's say, the Southern Baptist Convention, and they contrast it to movements like the Emerging Church. And they make it sound like, well, here the Emerging Church, you know, comes along and it doesn't make waves and all this other stuff. But, you know, here's these harsh Calvinists talking about total depravity and election, and they're demanding that you believe these truths because they're biblical, whereas uh, Emerging Church is unassuming and, and you know, just sort of – Loving. Well, the problem with this, all this stuff is, is that it's not about, the discussion is not about which one is biblical, but I think that the other issue here that really drives people crazy in this, and if I can flip the discussion maybe back into our positive angle on this, is that it's okay if the emerging church comes in and does a lot of crazy, new, weird, radical stuff, because that's, there. It's a, it's a marketing technique. We're trying to reach young people. The thing that's annoying people about Calvinism making an upsurge among the young people is because the elite, the enlightened ones, are the ones who are in the know. And what they know about young people is that they're not going to like this boring Bible stuff. They're not going to like talk about total depravity or predestination. What they're going to like is some super cool hip guy up there doing some cutting-edge 1960s hippie throwback thing, and they're going to be attracted by that. And there's a little bit of disgust about the fact that truth is actually interesting to young people. I think it's just shocking, and it completely destroys their paradigms, because they have this assumption that young people and Christians in general are actually rather brain dead and don't want to learn anything complex. But the reality is people have a real hungering and thirsting for knowledge. And the church has gone out of its way to kill that. And so what we're doing now is we're saying, no, go back. You're right. You should know more. God has given you 66 books in the Bible in order that you will know him and understand who you are in his kingdom. I mean, what these guys are saying about the five points of Calvinism is true. I mean, I guess that's what we're saying. We're, we're saying two kind of different things. One thing is, insofar as guys like John Piper and Al Mohler and Mark Deaver are talking about the five points of Calvinism, you should listen to them. Now, on the other hand, you shouldn't be duped that just because they're Reformed on those things, that they're biblical on those things, that they define what re- Reformed theology is. I mean, this is just the tip of the iceberg. I can talk, point you to a lot of people in our churches who kind of cut their teeth on Calvinism through these guys and other types of... of uh, tulip teachers but then they discovered oh wait a minute if we hadn't discovered 
this stuff, maybe there's other things that the reformers said, and I want you to know that the people, in large part, who are being presented as Calvinists in this article uh, do not believe those other things which the reformers fought for. Yeah, and, and one key to this here, it seems to me, is they have a quote here from Piper talking about uh, the struggles that he encounters when he's talking with young men in the ministry. And he says, one of the most common things I deal with in young pastors is conflict with their senior pastors. They're a youth pastor and they've gone to Trinity or they've read something by Sproul or I wrote and they say, well, we're really out of step. What should we do? And then his advice is, well, you go talk to your senior pastor and you ask him if they can teach according to your convictions, even if they're in Wesleyan Arminian churches. Now, this points to something that's very important in this whole struggle. The conception of what it means to be a Calvinist or Reformed is that you just set, you believe a set of abstract principles or ideas. And then you go back to whatever flavor of a group you're in, community church, uh, Gen X, emerging, whatever, Wesleyan, Arminian, and then you just force it down their throat. But that's not Calvinism. Calvinism is not just sort of a set of abstract principles. It's a churchly conception of truth, doctrine, and it's working and it's piety working and overflowing out of that context. Let me give you a practical application of what uh, Pastor John's saying here. I, I've been through this. Okay, I was one of those who cut my teeth on Calvinism through the five points of Calvinism and was beating my head in and driving everybody crazy in all the churches that I was in because I wanted to teach these things and defend the truth of God as I understood it. In the meantime, there were so many other things out of order in my own thinking about the Scripture, according to how the Reformers would define it, that was causing all kinds of strife and conflict in the church that I don't think was necessary. And it wasn't until later that I understood understanding what the church is, understanding what worship is, understanding what the sacraments are, understanding the full sort of extent of the biblical teaching about how I should live my life and what I should believe, that I realized that I had to be in a Reformed church. I had to be in a thoroughgoing biblical church, and I wasn't God's gift to the ministry to all of a sudden share all of my deep insights with everybody and cause all this trouble. Exactly. I, I think one of the things I would say to somebody who finds themselves in the position that Piper describes here no, you do not go back to the senior pastor and say, hey, you know what, can I cause a lot of division in this church by teaching exactly opposite of you? Because that's exactly how you're going to turn people off from the truth. You go to your senior pastor, you give them the resignation letter, and you spell out to him why you are leaving. Then you go to the local, uh, the, the closest Reformed church you can find, you shut your mouth, and you start to learn about Calvinism. Maybe they'll send you to seminary once they decide you have the gifts for the ministry or not. But either way, you do not stay there and divide a church. It's dishonest, and it brings dis it brings reproach upon the gospel eventually. It hardens people to the truth. John, it's funny that you say that. I mean, that's amazing. It brings back memories, because I actually had guys that were my pastors and leaders in the other churches sit down with me and say, you know, why don't you just, if you have these strong convictions, why don't you just go to a Reformed church where, you know, you're already in line with me? And they would bring up passages like, you know, submitting to elders and coming in. And I used to think, well, I'm, you know, I'm on the side of the Bible and nobody could tell me what to do. But that is a legitimate commandment, right, in the Scripture, that you be submissive to the elders. I mean, the the obvious logical biblical inference from that is that you need to be in a place where you are in line your convictions are in line with the teaching and the preaching that you're hearing i mean this is one of the things that we think is is very important for all of these people out there and we know there are many of you this article is a proof of it that are 
coming to understand the five points of Calvinism and liking what you're hearing, there is more. Don't cause trouble where you are, but get in a Reformed church where you can learn and be continue to be challenged and grow in the Scripture, and that's ultimately your gifts can be used in a productive way, in a way that's not causing angst in the visible church. Yeah. What you're doing by staying in situations like that is you are reinforcing the negative stereotypes that are already out there about the Reformed faith and Calvinism, and you are making it more difficult for them later on down the road to actually listen to you or to a biblical teacher who is in the name of Christ, under the authority of Christ, actually expounding the truth in an accurate way. And this is one of the problems that I have with this article, and I have some sympathies to the divisions that are even being caused in the midst of some of these churches. If they are not explicitly Calvinistic, if they are not explicitly reformed they should not expect this to have to happen to their churches and you people should leave that's the bottom line that's why there are reformed churches out there because there are churches that are confessional that are protestant that are biblical that are historical and and you have a home there leave those places yeah but moses if i leave that church i mean who is going to be the calvinistic voice for all of those poor people who just need the truth and I, you know, I don't think, I don't think they can be reached unless we stay and give a witness. I mean, didn't Paul tell Timothy to, to stay in Ephesus so that uh, he could preach sound doctrine and refute those who were in error? I mean, isn't that the obvious? Well, here's the thing is that if you actually do believe Reformed theology, then trust that God will call in his elect and you do what you are commanded to do. The revealed will of God is your responsibility and obligation, which is, be where you can respect the elders and submit to them and worship God rightly. Yeah, but I love that logic. Most of the Calvinist cliques. It's like, well, let me stay in a church where the worship is not God-centered. Let me stay in a church where the sacraments are completely, you know, in disarray. Let me stay in a church where the biblical practice of church discipline is not exercised. Let me stay in a church where there's all this antagonism. If it's not explicit, it's just you know, underground, ready to explode. Let me stay here and violate God's will in any number of other ways. But I'm going to be the one who's going to give Calvinism to the people so that they can come around. No, this is ridiculous. No, and there's a number of problems. One of them is obviously that you are causing an unfortunate schism within the church. But understand, no matter what you do, once you understand the true doctrines of grace and the fullness of Reformed theology... You will be divisive. There is no possible way to believe the truth in a sin-filled world and not be divisive. So don't worry about people saying, oh, you left the church, you went away, and with those weird people. No, you need to go where the word of God is rightly preached. Well, maybe you're soft-pedaling it. You're a megalomaniac. You are self-absorbed. You are idolatrous. If you think that it's all about you, it's up to you to bring the reform. You're not even an appointed preacher of the gospel. This is not your calling. What you need to do, as we've been already been saying, is you have to leave those situations and you have to trust that the Lord will use his own messengers whom he has raised up and gifted to send to these people. And if he is not pleased to, you need to rely on your own theology, which says that some people, God is not pleased to open their hearts and minds and send the gospel to them. And that would only be an affirmation of your own convictions. And what, what about the- and what what about the whole idea of you being a godly witness by your example? I mean, if you're as influential as you think you are and you want to stand for God's truth, why do you think that all of a sudden if you made a, a loving and conscientious decision to leave and you didn't go out with your guns blazing but you left in an appropriate way, why do, why do you think that all of a sudden people wouldn't notice that? 
and maybe by God's grace follow your example and see how serious the distinctives you're talking about really are. Well, let's shift gears here a minute. Uh, I hope you got that message about you're not needed there and you need to be in a true church. Uh, there's a couple of other points that the article raises in, in, in my mind here that I want us to touch on. Is one of them is, uh, again, we've sort of touched on this lightly, the fact that only Calvinism is uh, divisive. And one of the interesting things that comes out here in this article is it says uh, that starting in 1993, the largest Protestant denomination's flagship seminary quickly lost at least 96% of its faculty. And, of course, it's referring to uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary when Al Mohler was appointed as the president of this seminary. Al Mohler, of course, being a, a staunch five-point Calvinist. But one of the things that's noted here in this article is that liberalism had been thoroughly entrenched in this seminary. Now tell me. That's not divisive? Well, here's also something to consider. Liberalism was entrenched. The theology that was dominant in the churches from these liberal seminaries was Arminian. The Calvinism comes along when people are saying, no, let's go back and read the scriptures. Right there, you're understanding that this idea of Arminianism is not another conservative option, but it is a distortion of the gospel that the liberals were comfortable teaching to their people or at least where it was leading to. So here comes Calvinism, at least the five points in the Baptist seminary, and it causes 96% of the faculty to depart because they are repulsed by it and are unwilling to even teach their own conventions, catechisms, and confessions. Because uh, some guy who's criticizing Moeller, who happens to be the provost of New Orleans Baptist Seminary, another Southern uh, Baptist seminary, uh, says, well, one of the reasons why we even let Al in the chicken house in the first place uh, is because he was such a staunch defender of conservatism and biblical inerrancy. You, you see here the pre presupposition is the, the baseline of Protestantism is biblical inerrancy. After that, it's just up for grabs. We have all these competing interpretations of what uh, the Bible is really saying. But as long as we sit here and we affirm wholeheartedly the Bible's inspired and inerrant, we're all under the same uh, tent. And no, that, that, that's not true. That, that's not biblical. You see, it's not just enough for you to say that you believe in the Bible. It's that you have to actually believe what the Bible says. Okay, that's, that's the point. That's why we have divisions among all kinds of different places that call themselves churches. That's why we have confessions. And the Reformed churches have defined what the basic teachings of the Bible are. And again, it's not something they made up. It's built on the foundations of the prophets and the apostles in the early church. It's summarized in the writing and the preaching of the early church fathers. It's rediscovered by the Reformers. And we talk about it today on start.urclearning.org. What is the Reformed faith? We'll answer that question for you. And we're not telling you anything new. But this is what it means to follow the Scripture. You know, sometimes some mentions in this article about, I don't like using the name Calvinist, I don't like using the name Reformed, I just say I like to follow the Word of God. Well, that's all good and fine. We're just using labels to help distinguish what we mean when we say what the Bible teaches. And and getting back to this um, big tent, so uh, so-called conservatism, you know, as Pastor Adam points out here, he's 100% correct. It's not just enough to believe that the Bible is the Word of God. What you have to do is actually believe what the Word of God says you should believe. And 
one of the things that they will say, well, it's just such a big book, 66 books after all, Old and New Testament, written over hundreds of years, different perspectives. I think there's a, there's an underlying suspicion of whether there's any way at all to affirm uh, what the Bible is actually saying, but that's another discussion for another time. But if they could boil it down, they would say, well, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says it's God's word, so you have to believe that. And number two, the Bible says that Jesus died on your cross for your sins. And number three is, the next fundamental pillar of that is, is that you have to go out and be very passionate about evangelism. And if you have all three of those things uh, down, then you're a conservative. You're a conservative. And what they're so up in arms about here is that they're afraid... And they, they say this outright, that if you believe in the doctrine of election, which is taught in the Bible, of course, then what you won't have is passion for evangelism. One of these guys criticizing Moeller again, the Calvinist in the SBC, and stuff, says, for many people, if they're convinced that God has already elected those who will be elect, I don't see how, humanly speaking, that can't temper your passion because you know that you're not that crucial in the process now. What a wonderful new insight that no one has ever brought up before. And even the article says that J.R. Packer answered this question 20, 30 years ago with a book that he wrote, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Yes, humanly, it doesn't make sense. But this isn't about what man understands. Grace is also not understandable by man. Neither is the Trinity or Christ, the incarnation of the living God. So that is one of the most stupid and asinine rebuttals, so-called, to Calvinism, which comes up again and again, and it has no value and has no bearing on any legitimate discussion. God calls us to worship him in spirit and in truth, and he commands us as a church to be missionary and to preach the gospel. That is all the Calvinists, the Reformed, need. The command of God, and we will obey by God's grace. Well, if you want to look just a little bit into church history, you'll find that the convicted Reformed churches are the ones who are perhaps the most zealous in evangelism. I mean, they're the ones that led early evangelistic efforts. The problem is the way people define evangelism today. It's all these hokey, and we've talked about this so many times from so many different angles, hokey techniques and, you know, harvest crusades and all this kind of nonsense that passes in the name of evangelism. Well, you're right. If you're reformed and you're really consistently reformed, you won't participate in all this stuff. And if that's what you want to call evangelism, fine. We don't want to have anything to do with it. We want to have biblical evangelism. We want to believe in preaching as the means of grace. We want to talk about our evangelism being connected to the worship of the local church. We want to talk about the hard work of developing relationships and not treating the gospel like it's some encyclopedia. Encyclopedias to be sold door to door. This is the problem. I mean, yeah, you want to redefine everything about the Christian faith and then criticize Reformed theology for not falling in line with it or supporting its its programs. Well, you can have it. Well, this is just exactly my point here. I mean... They're more concerned about what well, this is, and this is what I think really makes people mad. Is if these young people would accept Calvinism, that means that all this stupid marketing and hokey techniques that we've been using for the last 50 years is 100% wrong. That's not evangelism. I think they see the critique in it of themselves. Oh, people want the truth? That actually changes people's hearts and minds and lives? They thought it was all about emerging church and these stupid, seeker-sensitive uh, tac tactics and techniques. And the point of the matter is, is that what you believe is not ultimately what drives you, I don't think, about being evangelism. Being 
a reform does not mean you will not be evangelistic. It does not mean that you will not have a vital piety. It does not mean that you will not have a concern for the glory of God. In fact, I believe that when you understand uh, biblical Calvinism, when you understand the Reformed faith, which is just consistent Christianity, all of those things will naturally flow out of your heart and your life. And so what we're trying to say here in our critique is that Calvinism is not the great boogeyman. It's not the great divider of the church. It's not this terrible, divisive theology, which all it does is set brothers at odds against each other. Calvinism is the truth. When it's believed, obeyed, and put into practice, it ends up glorifying God, and it promotes his kingdom, and it builds people up in the image of Jesus Christ. We want to thank you for listening to us on Sinners and Saints. Join us next week as we tackle more topics with the truth of God's Word on Sinners and Saints, Theology with an Edge.